Well, let's turn to Genesis chapter 21. Going through a series on the life of Abraham, and Genesis 21 is one of the most important chapters in the book of Genesis because it shows God fulfilling his promise to give Abraham and Sarah a son, and that this son, what God had promised, was going to in the son's line, his offspring, the Messiah was going to be born. So God had promised to give Abraham and Sarah a son through whose offspring the Messiah was going to be born who would crush Satan's power and bring salvation to people from every ethnic group. So chapter 21 is huge because this promise of a son for Abraham and Sarah started back in chapter 12. Now in chapter 21, we're going to see it fulfilled. But now before we look at chapter 21, I want to take us all the way back to the very beginning of Genesis, Genesis chapter 1 and 2, because I want to show you how the birth of the Messiah was promised way back at the beginning of Genesis, and then show how it's woven through the whole story and how it connects with the birth of Isaac, which will show you why Isaac's birth to Abraham and Sarah was so important. So all the way back, Genesis 1 and 2, creation. You've read those chapters. God shows himself to us as infinitely powerful, perfectly wise, and just overflowing with joy and love and goodness because he creates this universe, beautiful universe, amazing planet Earth and Adam and Eve, and he gives them the joy of knowing him, fellowshipping with him, beholding him, worshiping a being as glorious as he is. So the first two chapters, God just displays his love and his power and his wisdom and his goodness. It's beautiful. But then tragically in chapter 3, Adam and Eve do what we've all done. They proudly refuse to recognize that God is God and that they are not. They refuse to recognize that, and they decide to turn their backs on God and decide for themselves how they're going to live, what's right, what's wrong, what they're supposed to do, with no regard for God, their creator, their loving, beautiful, glorious creator, no regard for God whatsoever. And the results of their sin, which is also what all of us have done, our sin, is that God's curse has come upon the world, the power of sin has enslaved all of us. And all of us face God's judgment forever in hell. That's where we are left, end of chapter 3. But then in the middle of chapter 3, God gives an amazing promise. Scholars call this the proto-evangelium. Okay, that's Latin. You can jot that down, all right? It means first gospel, proto-first, evangelium, gospel. This is the first time the gospel message is spoken and promised in the Bible. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. God is talking to Satan, and here's what he says. You take it three lines, three lines, one line at a time. God's talking to Satan. He says, I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman. Now, this is crucial because at that point, there was no enmity. There was no division. There was no separation between Eve and Satan. Eve was in agreement with Satan. Eve was following Satan. Eve was in league with Satan because of her own sin. 
and the power of, of her sin. But in great mercy, God promises, I'm going to put enmity. I'm going to put a division, a separation between Eve and the serpent, which means that God in his mercy is going to bring his power upon Eve and change her heart. Set her free from Satan's power. Set her free from the power of her own sin. Give her a brand new heart so she turns back to God, is completely forgiven and restored into relationship with God. And he's going to do the same thing for Adam as well, although it's not explicitly stated here. So God's going to put enmity between Adam and Eve and the serpent. Change their hearts, save them. Now, how can God do that for Adam and Eve who've sinned so much? It's because thousands of years in the future, Jesus would die on the cross and pay for Adam and Eve's sins so that God could be merciful to change their hearts, give them faith, give them repentance, forgive their sins, reestablish relationship with him. Now, next line, Genesis 3.15, the proto-evangelium. God says, and... I will put enmity between your, Satan's, offspring and her, Eve's, offspring. So God will not just change the hearts of Adam and Eve. He's going to change the hearts of a vast number that no one can count from every nation and tongue and tribe. So there's going to be this massive number of people who, by God's mercy and his power, have their hearts changed, turned to God, trust Christ, forgiven for their sins. And that means that there's going to be a division then within humanity between those who continue to follow Satan's ways, continue to follow the path of sin, and those who bend the knee before Christ, trust the Messiah, and are forgiven and restored. God's going to put enmity between the serpent's seed and Eve's seed. Then look at the last line. He, one of Eve's offspring, shall bruise your, Satan's, head. And you, Satan, shall bruise his heel. So what this means is God's going to raise up one of Eve's offspring, a human being. He's going to raise up one of Eve's offspring who's going to bruise Satan's head. And that language implies a mortal wound which will destroy Satan. So some human being God's going to raise up who's going to destroy Satan's power. In the process of that, this human being is going to have his heel bruised, which is a, it's not a mortal wound, doesn't destroy him, but it is a wound nonetheless. So Genesis 3.15 is amazing. God's going to change Eve's heart, separate her, change her so she turns away from Satan, trusts God is forgiven. God's going to do this for a vast number of people, but no one can count. There's going to be a division between humanity, and all this is going to happen through one of Eve's offspring who's going to crush Satan's power. Now, who is this offspring of Eve who crushes Satan's power? It's Jesus Christ. See, we know because we've read the whole book, right? So we know the whole story, but it's Jesus Christ, the Messiah, who would be fully man and also fully God. Jesus has existed from eternity past with God the Father, God the Son, Jesus, God the Spirit, all together, and then he became a man, became a human being, born of a virgin, as we read from the Apostles' Creed this morning, and on the cross, he paid for sin's guilt, and by paying for sin's guilt, he broke Satan's power so we could be set free. This is the whole story, and all of that is wrapped up in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. So we know the whole story, but the original readers of Genesis, they come to chapter 315 and they're left thinking, 
Who's this going to be? When's he going to be born? Who is this offspring of Eve who's going to do this? And chapters 4 through 11 of Genesis show how important this is because in those chapters, sin and God's curse and Satan's power spread throughout the entire earth like slime or mold just covering the entire globe. So at the end of chapter 11, virtually everyone is under Satan's power, facing God's punishment, under God's curse. But then Genesis 12, this is beautiful. We see that God in his mercy has saved Abraham changed his power just like he did with Adam and Eve, put enmity between Abraham and the serpent, saved Abraham. Abraham trusted God's mercy, was forgiven for his sins, restored into relationship with God, and then God makes an astonishing promise to Abraham. Now, to put this in context, Abraham is 75 years old at this point, and Sarah has never gotten pregnant throughout the years of their marriage. And look at what God promises in verse 3. He says, I will bless those who bless you, Abraham, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, later, when God repeats this promise, he gives more clarity, and he says it's, it's not through Abraham per se, it's through Abraham's offspring, so one of, through one of Abraham's offspring, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. So here the promise that God made back in Genesis 3.15 gets more focused. Back there it was an offspring of Eve. Okay? One of the offspring of Eve was going to be raised up to crush Satan's power. Now it narrows down to one of the offspring of Abraham. And the offspring of Abraham is going to bring the blessing of salvation to people from every nation, tongue, and tribe, the blessing of salvation, hearts changed, forgiveness of sins, restored relationship with God to people from every ethnic group. That's what God is promising here. So this is amazing news. When's this going to happen? When is this offspring of Abraham going to be born? Who is it going to be? How is this going to take place? So at this point in Genesis, all of us readers are wondering, when will Abraham and Sarah get pregnant? Right? That's the question we all have. When will they get pregnant? Now, tragically, right after this promise, halfway through chapter 12, Abraham and Sarah head down to Egypt. Remember what happens? And Abraham lies to Pharaoh. Abraham is afraid that Pharaoh's going to kill him. Sarah's beautiful. He's afraid Pharaoh's going to want Sarah in his harem and that he's going to get killed. So he lies. Pharaoh, meet my sister, Sarah. Sarah, glad to meet you. Come with me. And there they go, off into Pharaoh's harem. But in great mercy, God delivers Sarah, Sarah from Pharaoh's harem. Then in Genesis 16, so the story just gets worse. Genesis 16, Abraham and Sarah are getting impatient. This is 10 years later. Abraham is now 86 years old. And it seems like Sarah and Abraham decide to take matters into their own hands. Sarah suggests that Abraham have a child by Sarah's maid. Abraham says yes, and Ishmael is born. And God says very clearly, Ishmael is not the one through whom the Messiah will be born. Although God shows great mercy to Hagar and Ishmael in chapter 16. 
So Abraham and Sarah keep waiting. 14 years later, Genesis 17, Abraham is almost 100 years old. Did you see? God could have had them get pregnant way back in chapter 12. Hey, God wants to teach us some crucial truths through this. So this is 14 years later. Genesis 17, Abraham's almost 100, and God comes to him and says, Abraham, Sarah, within one year, your son will be born. The son I've promised you, Isaac. He will be born within one year. This will be the son through whom salvation will come to people from every ethnic group. One of his offspring is going to be the Messiah. That's what God says. So all of us readers, we are really excited now. One year to go. Okay, we've waited all these years so far. One year to go. What happens next? Remember last week? It's just tragic. It's just baffling. Genesis 20, Abraham lies to Abimelech. He's afraid Abimelech's going to kill him and take Sarah in his harem. And so he says, hi, Abimelech. This is my sister, Sarah. Abimelech says, hello. Come into my harem. There she goes again. In great mercy, God delivers Sarah again. And then in great mercy, God blesses Abraham and God blesses Abimelech. Astonishing what happens here. So here we are, end of chapter 20. And here's the situation. God's promised Abraham and Sarah a son through whose offspring the Messiah would be born, who would crush Satan's power and bring salvation to people from every ethnic group. But they are old. Okay? They are old. I mean, Abraham is almost 100 years old. He's well past the ability to bear children. Sarah not only has never gotten pregnant, now she's beyond the ability to physically conceive and have children. So this is impossible physically. Plus, they have sinned, 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 sinned. Now, I don't want to overstate it, right? They've prayed. They've called upon the Lord. Forgive us, Lord. Okay? But, I mean, Moses could have easily left those things out, but he shows us lying, taking things into their own hands, lying. So Abraham and Sarah are old, and they do not deserve this. Do you feel this? But the promise was made. So here's the question. Will God be faithful regarding the birth of Isaac? Will he keep his promise? And the answer is in Genesis 21. Now we're at Genesis 21. Are we there? Verses 1 and 2. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. After after all that had happened, Genesis 12 through 20, God miraculously, miraculously has Sarah get pregnant by Abraham just as he promised. Then, in Genesis 3 and 4, Abraham obeys what God had told him. Verse 3, Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac, calls him Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. So Abraham obeys. Then in verses 5 through 7, Moses wants to emphasize one more time just how old Abraham was, so we don't miss this. Verse 5, Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. She said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? 
Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Now, I want you to feel just how shocking this is. Imagine that there was a couple here at Grace Church uh, who were like 70 years, no, not 70 years old, not 80 years old, okay, not 90 years old, but there's a couple here who are 100 years old. And next Friday, I say, church, we have an amazing announcement to make. (laughs) This 100-year-old couple, they're going to have a baby. Now, can you feel how shocking that would be? It's like, that does not happen. Because it does not happen. God could have had them get pregnant way back, but no, 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 year after year after year after year, because God wants us to understand The birth of Isaac is absolutely miraculous. It is jaw-dropping. It is shocking. And and the reason Paul, the reason is, according to what Paul says in Romans 9, one of the reasons God has had the events transpire in this way is he wants to make sure we understand that salvation is not by our own power and abilities and efforts. It's by God's power changing our hearts, setting us free. We're running away from him as fast as we possibly can go, and he in great mercy, costly mercy, changes hearts, changes hearts, a vast multitude no one can count. From every nation, tongue, and tribe, salvation is by God's power alone. And it's merciful. It's merciful. Abraham and Sarah, it's not like they were like, Look at how, much, how faithful they were, how godly they were. Surely they, they deserve God to do this for them. Yes, they were faithful, but they sinned and they sinned and they sinned. And this is by God's power and this is by God's mercy. That's what Isaac and his salvation, salvation through the Messiah that will be born in his line, that's what salvation is all about. So will God be faithful Regarding the birth of Isaac, will he be faithful to this promise? The answer is yes. Chapter 21, 1 through... Oh, I didn't read chapter... Verse 8. This is very good. Verse 8, great celebration. Okay, you can imagine. And the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. 100 years old, Abraham and Sarah, let's have a party. Let's celebrate our baby. You can imagine, can't you? Beautiful. Okay, now, there's another troubling question, though, that we need to see God take care of. Because Abraham and Sarah had taken matters into their own hands, Ishmael was in the picture, a young teenager at this time. And we need to ask the question, or Moses, in verses 9 through 21, raises the question, will Ishmael threaten Isaac, God's plan through Isaac, God's promise through Isaac. And start reading in verse 9. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So Sarah sees Ishmael laughing. Now, laughing can just be innocent laughing, or or it can be wicked laughing. (laughs) Right? (laughs) And in Galatians chapter 4, verse 29 we see what kind of laughter this was. Jot down that reference. Look at what we read in Galatians 4.29. This is what Paul says about Ishmael and Isaac. He says, But just as at that time 
He who was born according to the flesh, that's Ishmael, born according to Abraham and Sarah's own efforts, their own works, their own attempts, their own trying. So he who was born according to the flesh, that's Ishmael, persecuted him who was born according to the spirit. That's Isaac, born according to God's power through the spirit. So also it is now. And he develops this whole allegory. You should read it on your own. But the point is that at that time, back in Genesis 21, Ishmael is persecuting little baby Isaac. Can you feel the difficulty? Can you feel the tension here? Ishmael was seeking to harm baby Isaac, which shows that Ishmael is a threat to what God has promised to do through Isaac. And so, verse 10, So she, Sarah, said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. Now Abraham did not want to cast them out. See that in verse 11. The thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But then God speaks to Abraham, verses 12 and 13. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So Ishmael needed to be out of the picture in order for God's plan through Isaac to be fulfilled. But in verse 13, we see that God's going to be merciful to Ishmael, right? Verse 13, I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also because he is your offspring. So early the next morning, Abraham gives them food, water, sends them off. Read verse 14. So Abraham rose early in the morning, took bread and a skin of water, and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder, along with the child, and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. Now, wilderness in the Middle East region gets hot, okay, you know, dangerous. They soon run out of water, but God is merciful to them. Just like we saw God being merciful to Hagar and Ishmael in chapter 16, God is merciful to them again in chapter 21. Look at verse 15. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot. For she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy he was crying out to. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy, hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water, gave the boy a drink, and God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness, became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. So God removes the threat of Ishmael from Isaac and Abraham and Sarah, but he does it in a way that shows great mercy and compassion to Hagar and Ishmael. So here's what we've seen so far. We started all the way back in chapter 1, okay? And we've traced God's promise that a child would be born who would 
break Satan's power, crush Satan's head, and bring the blessing of salvation to people from every ethnic group. So which child is this? All right, I already told you, but let me tell you again. Which, is this, which offspring of Isaac is it going to be who's going to break Satan's power and bring salvation? The answer is all through the Bible. Let me show you explicitly Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Go ahead and turn there, or it'll be up on the screen. So get the picture here. The first book of the New Testament, the first verses in the book of the New Testament. Keep going through the New Testament, the Old Testament. People are still waiting. When's he going to be born? When will he be born? When will he be born? The first verses of the New Testament, Matthew 1, 1 and 2, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. There he is. And Isaac, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. And then Matthew traces it all the way down to Jesus in verse 16, verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. So the child prophesied back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. One of Eve's offspring is going to break Satan's power. The child promised to Abraham and Sarah in Genesis 12, through one of your descendants, all the families of the earth, every ethnic group is going to be experienced people being saved. The promise to the, the seed of the offspring of Isaac in chapter 17, through you the covenant of salvation is going to be affected. The child that was promised, offspring of Eve, offspring of Abraham, offspring of Isaac, is Jesus Christ. Fully God, has existed from eternity past, takes on human nature, now he's fully God and fully man. And he crushes Satan's head by dying on the cross, paying for our sins. He purchases salvation for a vast number that no one can count from every nation, tongue, and tribe. He brings the covenant, the new covenant of salvation to people. That's why we're saved, is because of what God did through the Messiah, promised to the offspring of Eve, offspring of Abraham, offspring of Isaac, and Jesus is born. Now, what do we learn from all this? Quick survey we've done, Genesis 1 through chapter 21. God is faithful to bring Abraham and Sarah, Isaac. What do we learn? And let me share with you four crucial truths that I'd like you to be thinking about, pondering, praying about today, talking about today. First of all, God is powerful. God's salvation is by God's power, not by our power. Again, Think about how impossible it was for Abraham and Sarah to get pregnant. Just feel that. You can read the Bible stories and not really get it, but just feel it. Again, a hundred-year-old couple. Abraham is beyond the age of childbearing. Sarah has never gotten pregnant, and now she's beyond physically being able to get pregnant. And God miraculously has them get pregnant. He supernaturally and miraculously. They couldn't get pregnant by their own efforts. God worked a miracle and produced that birth. And so the, the point of this is that salvation is by God's power alone. All we brought to the table was our sinfulness. He changes our hearts. He gives us faith. He gives us repentance. He creates us into being brand new creatures he does all the heavy lifting and salvation. We come to him, help. And he, because of what Jesus has done, changes us. 
So he gets the glory, we get the salvation. It's salvation is of God's power alone. And oh, is he powerful. It's like Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. We were dead in sin, but God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Oh, this is beautiful. So God's power in salvation. Second truth. God's mercy in salvation. Again, you might think that the reason Abraham and Sarah were blessed with the child at their old age was because of their faithfulness and godliness. And again, they were saved. They did trust God, but they sinned. They sinned in shocking ways. And the reason that we have that included in the story is so we will all understand this is not because they earned any of it. They did not earn Isaac. They did not earn pregnancy. This was mercy, mercy, mercy. Do you see that? Pure mercy, what God has done. And that's a picture of our salvation. We don't deserve any of it. In ourselves, all we deserve is God's judgment forever. But at great cost to himself, God sent his son to the cross. Fathers, sending your son to that? Great cost to the Father and great cost to Jesus going to the cross. It's mercy, it's mercy, it's mercy. We are sinners left to ourselves, deserving nothing but hell forever. And God has lavished his grace and forgiveness upon us at great cost to himself All the glory for salvation belongs to God and His Holy Son, Jesus, and the work of the Holy Spirit. None of the glory goes to us. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. So think about it. All the glory in the universe belongs to whom? God in Christ by the Holy Spirit. None of us deserve any glory because anything good in us was bought at a price and given to us through mercy. So all the glory goes to God. So just bow, church, in your hearts before the sovereign, merciful, glorious, saving, loving, costly loving God who has saved us with a salvation at great price. He gets the glory. We get the salvation. That's the second truth. Mercy. Salvation is by mercy. God delights in mercy. Third truth, God has a purpose. God has a purpose. His purpose, which started back before the foundations of the world, was to display his glory and beauty and majesty through saving lost men and women through his holy son, Jesus, to his glory. And mercy, great mercy. That's, that's God's purpose. I mean, you might wonder, what's going on in the world Is there any purpose here? Is there any meaning to the world? Some of you may have been haunted with those kinds of questions recently, and the answer is yes. There is a beautiful, glorious purpose. The God of the universe has purpose to display the glory of his beauty through saving lost men and women by his mercy and by his power. That's the purpose. So here's my question to you. Is your purpose God's purpose? He calls every follower of Jesus, you can have the joy of being part of my purpose. It's like N.A. prayed earlier, go and make disciples of all the ethnic groups. Go and do that. 
I will change their hearts. I will save lost people. You'll see the beauty of my glory going forth in salvation. Go and make disciples of all the nations. That's the purpose. So my challenge is, are you making God's purpose your purpose? Especially we are here in such a strategic place spiritually where we meet people every day who've never heard the gospel. And even those who have need to hear it again. We're surrounded by people who desperately need the salvation that came through Jesus Christ. So, so don't waste your life on lesser purposes. 100 years from today, okay, I'm assuming we're all going to be standing before, we're all going to be in heaven, I hope, but 100 years from today, there we are in heaven, and all that will have counted is people we've brought to us, brought, sorry, brought with us, for the glory of Jesus and salvation, and hearts that we've nurtured of love for Christ ourselves. People we've brought who are trusting Christ and hearts that we've nurtured that are trusting Christ. That's what'll count. Now, that doesn't mean you quit your job. It doesn't mean God's called you to your job, right? Your job is just as holy as my job as a pastor, right? You understand that, don't you? Okay? Do you understand that, church? God's called you to your job just as holy. But see, you're not here just for your job. Praise God for the jobs. Beautiful thing. But don't have that be your, your only purpose. Oh, there's much. Isn't it good news that there's more than just your job? I mean, my job's awesome, but bless you all. Okay, so <laughs> God has a purpose. God has a purpose. What's your purpose? What's your purpose? What do you want to do in the next 10 years, 20 years? Last question, or last truth. God's plan focused on Jesus from the very beginning. This is huge. New religions are being created all the time, right? Every couple of months, there's a new religion popping up here, popping up there, popping up everywhere. But see, Jesus is talked about in the very first book of the Bible. The very beginning of creation, Jesus is talked about. One of Eve's offspring would destroy Satan. And that's what Jesus did on the cross. And then Jesus is talked about in Genesis 12. One of Abraham's descendants is going to bring salvation to all the peoples of the earth. And he's talked about in Genesis 17, the offspring of Isaac, through whom God's going to bring the saving covenant. So what this shows is that Jesus wasn't just some new religion that people thought up 2,000 years ago. Jesus was God's plan of salvation, not just chapter 1 and 2 and 3 of Genesis, but from eternity past. So see, Jesus has always been God's plan of salvation, which means he is God's plan of salvation. And the question is, are you trusting Jesus for your salvation? Picture it like this. Imagine a, a massive river, rushing river. I just saw something on YouTube. Yosemite in the U.S., they've had a lot of snowfall. Man, the rivers are just like... Whoa. Okay, so picture this. Massive, strong, rushing river of sins, guilt, and power. And you are in the middle of that. We all have been. And you can't get out of that river. It's rushing you towards judgment falls. And you will go over to your eternal destruction. There you are. But God, standing on the shoreline at great cost to himself, has thrown you the lifeline of Jesus. 
This was in God's heart from eternity past. This isn't just some, some new little lifeline. Is it going to hold up? Is it going to work? This is God's lifeline. This is the Son of God, Jesus, fully God, fully man. He throws you the lifeline, and if you will grab onto that lifeline and hold onto that lifeline, He, by His sovereign power, will pull you. He will pull you out of that river of sin's guilt and power to himself forever. But are you clinging to the lifeline of Jesus? That's the question. Are you clinging to him? Are you playing games? Are you thinking, well, do you, you have Christian parents or because you go to church? Isn't that? No, 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 no. You can have Christian parents, you can go to church, you can read your Bible and not be clinging to Jesus Christ. Are you by faith clinging to Jesus, leaning on Jesus, depending upon Jesus, trusting Jesus? He's the lifeline that was prophesied all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. See his beauty, see his love, see his power, see his glory. How can you not trust him? Trust him and be forgiven and saved today. That's my appeal to you. Now let's stand and pray.